Hey guys, so this week I got to talk with Bill Patton from Brainsports.coach. We covered a variety of topics from anxiety to visual training to how he became a writer of seven plus books. He put my worries at ease about not watching the ball at the moment of contact too. But stay tuned because as it turns out, it depends on your eye and hand dominance. He does a great job of breaking this down for us. So this podcast is honestly a passion project for me. It is really fun and all, but I would love to hear from you, especially if you have now listened to a few of the episodes. I'm a full-time tennis pro, and I'm recording these sometimes after a full day on court. It would be a treat to hear from our listeners. I really hope that you're enjoying the episode so far. Please remember to follow Vita Tennis on Facebook and Instagram, and you can email me at vitatennispodcast at gmail.com. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there, only here at Vita Tennis. Here is my conversation with Bill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. My name is Jennifer Gilhouse. Today, I am talking to the brain sports coach himself, Bill Patton. Bill has over 35 years of tennis coaching experience at different clubs, public facilities, and high school tennis teams. He's certified by the USPTA and the PTR, and he has published seven books. Some of his most popular ones being Visual Training for Tennis, The Athlete Center Coach, and The Art of Coaching High School Tennis. Bill lives in California, and he recently presented at the USPTA Southern California Annual Conference. Welcome, Bill, to Vita Tennis. Thank you so much for being here today. Did I get all of that mostly right? You, it was mostly right. I'm actually no longer with the PTR at this time. So my, it, I might re-up with them again sometime, but I'm formerly certified by the PTR. And okay. yep, all that's good. And yeah, just recently moved from Oakland to San Diego. Nice. I love San Diego. It's so fun out there. So pretty. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. So Bill, how did you get into coaching? Let's start from the beginning. Oh, all right. No, this is a, it's a funny thing. So part of it's pedigree because my, my father was a baseball coach and he was a quite an accomplished baseball coach. And when, when he had to stop coaching, it broke his heart, you know? So, so when I went into coaching, I kind of knew that I pretty much had to do it forever and ever that, If I was going to start coaching, I wasn't going to stop coaching because I saw what happened with him. But it's an interesting story, though, because it, it takes you back to a simpler age when people looked in the newspaper for a job, right? So this was something that used to happen. We used to read the newspaper and there was the want ads. And so I saw a job to become the high school coach of my alma mater. And by the time I responded, they had already hired somebody. But I told my girlfriend, who's now my wife, you know, that I was interested in that. She's, oh, I didn't know you're interested in coaching. I have a friend whose husband is a pro. So can I get you an informational interview with him? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, so I went and talked to the guy and we hit a few balls and on the spot he hired me to run his summer program because he was going to be leaving town so he had a parks and rec summer program and he trained me for a week at a camp that he was running i was left to do an entire parks and rec program by myself and people were fooled into learning tennis <laughs> and some good, a good friend of mine who I'll never forget, and he recently passed, was said, you know what, Bill, I think you'd be a good coach. And so, so that's how that started. I mean, I was really kind of amazed at how little I knew and how easily people learned. Yeah. And was this right after college or how old were you? No, I think I was 26 at that time. I had <laughs> just sort of rededicated myself to playing more. So at 23, I decided that I was really going to play. I, I had taken a pretty long hiatus and decided I was really going to play and start playing lots of tournaments and, and, you know, improving my game. So that was, that was the precursor to becoming a coach. 
Got it. And is high school, has high school always been your first love, your your passion project is to yeah i think so i mean because because there's this visceral excitement that i get in regard to i got my little i have my army over here and we're going to take it against your army and then we're going to battle it out and see who wins so that's fun for me to you know assemble my troops and train them and send them to battle if you work with boys and girls Yes. Yes. About equally. Yeah. I think I've coached maybe a couple more seasons of boys than I have girls, but yeah, it's, it's always interesting. And you know, the girls, the girls are more fun, but the guys are slightly more competitive in general. I mean, I've had, I've had some ferociously competitive girls who, you know, are really awesome. So. I think it, it takes a certain type of person or a certain type of personality, I guess, to, really know how to deal with teenagers and high school students because they can be really tough sometimes. I mean, if you're not used to it, I think, especially if, if you know, they're not too serious about tennis, it can be really difficult to to learn how to handle youth. I don't know. Maybe it's more, yeah. more now because I feel like yeah. teenagers can be pretty tough. Well, I think, yeah, I think this, I think the number one thing that I brought to it was empathy because I remember, cause I didn't forget what it was like to be a teenager yeah. and got and thinking, this sucks. The coach sucks. I hate this drill. All the, all the different things that can, that make teenagers tough. Right. Yeah. So, so I empathize with that and I was like, okay, you know, and, and when I was a kid, I was always evaluating my teachers and I, and I, even as a like a junior in high school I was like you know what I can teach this class better than this teacher's doing it so if I was and I would dream up you know if I was teaching what would I do so I was already thinking ahead about that and later I also became a high school teacher and that I think even more prepared me for coaching than just simply knowing a lot about tennis because because it's a completely different thing when you're teaching a subject that many don't like and or are afraid of and you have to make them succeed. Generally, kids who come out for the tennis team want to play tennis. Yeah, and right? it's like a fun thing to, for them to do also, yeah. Yeah. And so tell us about brain sports. Let's shift gears into brain sports. What is that all about? Yeah, it's it's kind of a recent transition because because it morphed from the visual training into the realization that really what I teach first is the brain stuff. So I kind of had an epiphany about a year ago where I was studying something and they and they were talking about how the visual system accounts for 60 percent of what the brain does. And so whoever's watching this right now, just close your eyes for a second and you and you feel your brain powering down. Then you open your eyes back up and you just you can feel it, you know, that, wow, oh, yeah, my brain's really active again because it's processing all this visual information. So but then I was like, OK, well, that's only 60 percent. What's the other 40 Right. I mean, so your brain is doing all the things that it needs to do to keep you alive. But I also realized that the first things that I do when somebody enters the court is I help them to reduce their anxiety. And so that is not a visual thing. It's a brain thing. So so that's so I, I, re I came to that realization. So then I, I had kind of I had to align my brand with what I'm really doing. Uh, so, but a, a huge chunk of what I'm teaching has to do with the interrelationship between your brain and your visual system. In fact, who was it? I think Andrew Huberman, Stanford University, was talking about how your eyes are so interconnected with your brain that you, it's almost as though they're part of your brain. And is this something that you have always had an interest? Do you have any kind of background in psychology or anything like that? 
Well, I mean, I yeah, in fact, as a kid, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the brain, by the human, you know, the just the mystery of it. Right. You know, it's still the most complicated piece of machinery in the known universe. And I mean, and I think even early on, you know, and this has been disproven, but they but they used to say you only use 10% of your brain. It's actually false because you actually you use all of your brain that you can use. So so it's you know, it's not really true that people only use 10% of their brain, but it is true that people could learn to get more out of it. I think I went off track from your question there a little bit, but and yeah, oh, and then yeah, my undergrad was in industrial psychology in school. Wow. So so that had a lot to do with learning theory and social psychology and organizational behavior and, you know, people. So people in groups, but then also studying workflow analysis, those types of things. So it's actually a great major for coaching. It really, it really is, especially for tennis, because it's such a mental and, such, and obviously an individual game. So there's a lot of things going on. With like you were saying, anxiety, you know, behaviors, the ability to focus, all there's so much there, right? So it's brain sports. Is that basically that's your coaching, right? Yeah, that's the brand that I'm operating under, and you know, I I introduce clients to what I do by saying, you know, I'm going to help you get the most out of your brain and get out of your brain's way. I think if if people didn't sabotage what their brain was doing, things would be a lot easier. So how can we as coaches make somebody not have so much anxiety when they come on a tennis court? Or how, how can we make them feel good from the get-go? Smile and say hi, right? <laughs> Smile and say hi. Hi, I'm Bill, right? Because, yeah. you know, put, and then, yeah, put yourself in their shoes. First-time student first time student and and is not a member of your club or whatever never been to your location right so they're going to go to a new place they've never been to meet someone they've never met to do things that they don't know what's going to happen they have no idea yeah. what's going to happen so so they've got you know the fear of the unknown times 3 yeah you then add that they didn't allow enough time to get there and they come running in late. And so they're freaking out. They're just, mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, so the first thing that you want to do, I mean, you definitely want to smile and say hello and welcome them in. Right. Nice to meet you. Be, you know, have that pleasant moment. How's your day going? Right. I have this joke that I use, but I don't think too many people can use this because I've practiced it for so long. So I tell them this, remember, attendance is optional. Payment is mandatory. <laughs> yeah, no, and they laugh. Every, pretty much everybody laughs, right? And so because, because then when they realize that I'm not mad at them, I'm not judging them for being late, and I'm... I'm still going to get paid the same. I'm not going to prorate the lesson because you came late, Jennifer. I'm sorry. Right. And that makes it feel good because people feel like they should be punished somehow when they, when they come late. So, so that's one thing that I do that puts them at ease. Another thing that I do is I see a lot of people who are trying way too hard and they're tense. And, you know, some people are trying to impress me or others some people have like issues because they they don't feel like they're good enough, so they have to try harder. Some people, by virtue of the fact that they're smaller of stature, think that they're not strong enough, so they have to try extra hard. You know, all these things. Or, you know, people who are big have to be very careful not to kill anyone, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, people grow up with these sort of these pre-programmed things. Maybe they failed a couple different times trying to play tennis or some other sport. So, you know, so 
another another little joke I have is this: I, I say, "Oh, looks like wow, you're really trying hard over there. That's awesome." And I'm over here goofing off, and then you're gonna pay me, <laughs> right? And then and then and they get this look on his face like that's not fair. Right? <laughs> okay, well, yeah, it's not fair. You're right; it's not fair. You're trying way too hard. You're working. I'm playing and trying to teach you to play and you're going to pay me. So the way you can equalize that is to bring a playful attitude to what we're doing here. Greg Patton, Greg Patton, who I'm not related to, was sharing a interesting thing where, he, where they found that when people are enjoying what they're doing, that the, the pathways that allow for faster learning are a lot more efficient. People can learn something 90% faster. That makes total sense. And yeah. what about the the other side of it? Have you looked at or maybe talked with coaches? Because sometimes coaches might be anxious. Maybe if they're a young coach or they've never worked with a certain age group, have you ever looked at that side of it? Yes. No, this is that's good. So actually in January and mid to until mid-February, I was in Australia training young coaches. And it was really fun. And so I, I trained them as players, but the, and then I turned it around and I said, now, if you were working with a student, now you can, you can empathize with where I'm coming from dealing with you. You can put yourself in my position and now you know what it's like to have these burdens removed from you. Right. And now now you see how you feel more free as a player to execute. We I, basically I put them through the experience of being coach. And I think in a lot of ways, when you go back and you reflect on what were the best practices of the people that you learned with. And so you probably had a coach that really made you feel at ease. When, the, when a coach goes out of their way to gain your trust, then it's a different kind of a dynamic. I think, you know, so, so yeah, so, you know, I trained, the, trained them as players and now, and then I shared the principles of, okay, here's why you feel that way. Because what I'm doing here is I'm creating a lower anxiety situation for you. And now, as you have shown mastery, now we go and we make things more difficult and we continue to go to more difficult and challenging circumstances until there's a breakdown. And then when things break down, that's where you work. And, you know, I, I'm sure anyone who's played any amount of tennis can relate to the fact that to that feeling of you've played competently at a certain level and then you go to a higher level of play. And now all of a sudden the ball's coming a lot faster with a wider variety of spins. And it's harder to get the ball past somebody. And so, you know, it takes some time to adjust to that new challenge level. But after you get acclimated to that level, you know, and meet those challenges, you know, because those will give you anxiety when, you know, all of a sudden you're facing serves you've never faced before and you can't return them. And then, But then when you start to, then you gain confidence. So so I like to get take my players and have them work slowly up into a more difficult place until they start to fail. And then we work there a little bit. And if they're really failing too much and they're losing confidence, then we'll take it back a step and we'll go back to the last level that they had mastery and we'll dwell there a little bit until they get their feet under them and go, okay, now we're going to take it up a notch. Are you ready? Yeah. So, and you know, sometimes it's the second time because now they're, now they're like, they had time to process that. And now they're ready to step up. And is that so is that what you mean by anxiety? Like anxiety is such a I guess such a general term. But do you mean like nervousness in general or like actually being to the point where you can, you know, 
play at your level or like at the level that you can? No, that's a great question. All right. So one of the most important sports psychology studies ever was by Reiner Martins at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, which is which is where human kinetics comes from. You ever seen human human kinetics publishers? Anyway, so it's one of the top physical education sports psychology meccas in the country, if not the world. So Reiner Martins in 1970 discovered that there's a difference between somatic anxiety, which is you know your body, it's how you how you how you feel. And cognitive anxiety, which is your thoughts. Yeah. So, so what he discovered is that as your thoughts are better, you perform better. And as when your thoughts are worse, you perform worse. So if you're very confident and you have, you're saying confident things to yourself and you have clear objectives, then great. But if you are unrealistic, have unrealistic expectations and, you know, are being negative and and worried about things, then you're going to do worse. So pretty, pretty much a straight line, regression line. But physically, you want to be somewhere in the middle because you're not going to win a tennis match like this too relaxed. Right. You're also not going to win a match like this. So you need that midpoint of being able to have enough fluidity, but then also enough resistive strength. So there's somewhere in the middle, you know, that you need to be physically. So yeah. Yeah. Come with physical anxiety to where, you know, you're shaking and you're having rapid breathing and, and you're tense, then that's a problem. I call it swinging the 15 pound racket. Mm -hmm. You know, so and then but then, you know, people who are a little too loosey goosey, you know, sometimes don't have, you know, what they need at the moment where there's a lot of intensity happening. You know, and I think of Nick Kyrgios when I say that, you know, because he has such a fluid and relaxed game. But but unfortunately, it betrays him at times. Yeah, because he'll just make he'll make errors that maybe aren't necessary. I think his emotions sometimes also get in the way. I think a lot of times people don't realize that you can't actually control your thoughts. People don't realize that. And I think that that's been a big thing for me. Once I started actually doing a like a mindfulness and, and yoga practice, when I got yeah. really into it, that's when I started learning more about this. And okay. I used to think that my thoughts are my thoughts. They're just happening. They're just there, just like your emotions. And it's so not true. And that's something that, you know, especially if you're working with high schoolers, like that would be if, if you can somehow bring that message to someone at that age, I think it, it'd be so incredibly valuable for their whole life. <laughs> okay. This is where I'm going to just be a little picky. All right. Yeah. Because you use the word control. All right. Okay. Ready? Squirrel. All right. So I said squirrel. Did you think squirrel? Yeah. So you weren't in control. You weren't in control. I said squirrel. Squirrel entered your brain. Right. Right. I mean, if I started doing this, so if I started doing this, you might start thinking, what is he doing with his glasses? Right. Right. Okay. I guess, so, I guess what I meant. Wait, wait, more. Let me. But let me let me take what you said, and I'm just going to put a little finer point on it. All right. Sure. So so control is an illusion. Nobody actually has control of much of anything. All right. But you can start to manage these things. So so the be I think the best thing to do is notice what you're thinking. Know what you're thinking. A lot of people don't even know what they're thinking. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've asked the question, hey, you know, you just double faulted. Were you thinking something ahead of time before that? And they go, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, you need to start to tap into what were you thinking? And sometimes I go, did you think when you, when you, before you double faulted, did you think don't double fault? And <laughs> go, yes, I did. 
And I'm like, and because you thought that, then you increase the chance that you might double fault. Yeah. Right. So now you can't control whether the phrase don't double fault is going to enter your mind, but you can manage what happens next. Right. So, you know, I had to learn to, okay, I just thought double fault. So I'm going to step out. I'm going to step back and I'm going to replace that thought with something else. Deep kick serve to the back end. Deep kick serve to the back ends because now I'm telling myself what I want, you know. And so then, so then instead of double faulting a bunch and having a bunch of weak second serves, then I had people complimenting on how difficult it was to break me because they couldn't figure out what was going on with my second serve. So, so yeah, you can manage it. You know, the other thing about thinking is, you know, I keep hearing stuff about how you, while you're conscious that there are very few moments where you're actually having no thoughts. Yeah. Right. Pretty much have a stream of consciousness of thoughts. And I think it's like something like 66,000 thoughts a day. Right. Yeah. Something like that. But you can, you can notice them. You can interact with them. You can manage them. I think it's good to question your thoughts sometimes. Why yeah. am I thinking that? Why am I thinking that? Yeah, that's more what I, probably what I was trying to say. I shouldn't have said yeah. you can't control your thoughts, but that's more what I was trying to say is believing your thoughts. Yeah, it's, I'm just being picky. No, 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 no. And, <laughs> and that's a very fair point because you can't control it. You can control anything. You control your thoughts. I mean, I think... You think so many thoughts a day. There's no way you can have any control over that. But you can question them and choose to believe them or not. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that's that's kind of where you regain your power and 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 take control of a situation that might feel out of control. So so yeah, I gave a presentation at the USPTA Southern Cal, and it was a situation fraught with anxiety because. Presenting before me was Michael Joyce, right? Who's got a pretty good resume. I mean, working with Sharapova for six and a half years and yeah. Jesse Pula and get you know getting her to the top of the game and all that. And then here comes Bill Patton right after that, right? So so I turned to my friend right before going on and I said, What if what if I don't improve these players, right? And so, so I was working with the same players that Michael had just worked with for an hour, right? So I'm like, how much more room is there for improvement now? But the cool thing was I took them through the system of my visual training system piece by piece, and they actually, they actually improved pretty dramatically. And I think both of them were surprised. And one of them, their parent was there and I was watching the parent, you know, as their jaw sort of dropped because her son, who's like a 10 UTR, you know, all of a sudden improved pretty quantumly before her eyes. So that's a lot of fun. All right. Now, I think I I baited the hook pretty well there. Now I'm going to tell you what it is. So, and the interesting thing here is, I mean, because of the time we have, I don't have time to give the entire presentation. Of course. But but I will start with the most important thing. And, and the analogy I like to use is, how do you diagnose your car if your car doesn't start, right? So you go, you put the, you put the key in, and you go, you turn it, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And so a lot of people know that there's a good chance you've got a dead battery. Mm -hmm. That's where you start. You start with the dead battery. I mean, if it doesn't turn over at all, you're not out. You you might be out of gas too, but you don't know if it doesn't turn over. If it turns, if you, but then if it goes, right. And nothing happens, you might be out of gas. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, but if it's on the middle and it's still not doing it, then it's something else. Right. So you have to, you have to take the things in order. All right. Now there, there are a couple, there are a couple of phases in the visual system. 
and there's nothing finite about them. So the, there's a big a, a big mistake would be to try to chop these up into pieces and try to act like somebody who knows when one thing transitions into the other. I have no idea, right? But here's where I work. All right, number one, see the ball coming out of the opponent's racket. That's the beginning. That's the battery. Okay. And and nearly 100% of players who come to me for the first time are not doing it. And I say nearly 100% because I think it's 100%, but, but I might have forgotten one person. <laughs> so this is like players up to, you know, 5055 level players, right? And this kid who was a 10.0 UTR wasn't seeing the ball coming out of the opponent's racket. Okay. So when you pay full attention to the ball coming out of the racket, then your brain gathers gigabits of information and then your decision-making is improved. You can, you can read the shot so much better if you're paying full attention at that moment. But if you, if you're going to try to pick the ball up and it's flight later, you've actually missed the moment that will determine so much about the flight of the ball, right? The, the swing path leading up to the ball, right? The, the angle of the racket at contact, where in the strings the ball was hit, you know, the relative amount of spin coming off, right? So there's so many different things that you can read if you're paying full attention at that moment. And when people come to me, they're, they haven't done that. They didn't know they weren't doing that. They thought they were doing it. In fact, I guarantee you there are people listening to this right now who say, oh, I do that. But then if we challenge them and they go back and do it, then I, I'm guessing at least 90% of them are not doing it. So after I got done with my talk, I was talking with Michael Joyce, and, and Michael said he really liked to talk. But he was like, he said, you know what? That's something Agassi told me. So Michael was, was hitting with Agassi, and then Agassi was kind of giving him some advice on how to play better. And that was one of the pieces he said was that, that he makes sure to see the ball coming out of the opponent's racket, you know, and Agassi was known as one of the cleanest ball strikers that the game has ever known. And so I think that that's a, there's a connection to that. Yeah. So where do you think people are looking? If they're not looking at the ball come off the racket of the opponent, where are they looking? They could be still absorbed in thinking about the outcome of their shot. Okay. They could be they could still be thinking, oh, I didn't hit that as cleanly as I wanted to. Right. And then and then and or they just habitually pick up the ball sometime after the hit. So their 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 eyes are looking over there, maybe, right? Their eyes are directed in that direction, but their attention is not is not directed completely at the interaction with the ball and the racket. Mm -hmm. and, and what about watching the ball at the moment that you hit it? Because I've always heard, you know, and, and of course we always tell people, watch the ball, watch the ball. And I actually, one time I was having somebody take pictures of me hitting a ball for something I was doing. This was years ago when I first started coaching. And funny enough, I'm looking at pictures of myself and I'm never looking at the freaking ball and I'm hitting it. Like not even close. Okay, well, don't be angry. Don't be angry. <laughs> and here's why. So were you looking ahead of contact? Yes. Okay, I'm going to explain why. So this is good. That's awesome. I'm glad you do that. <laughs> and and now, now, see, you're mad at yourself because you were told that you have to have your eyes at contact. Mm-hmm. And I'll, and I'll get into that later. That's a little further along in the process. Sure. So you want me to go to the next step or do you want me to answer that one now? However you want. <laughs> All right. Let's go to the next step because I want to keep it in order and I'll make okay. sure to answer why that is. Okay. All right. So, so then the next thing is that Vic Braden, who was the front facing person 
he was like the spokesman for a lot of sports scientists. So, you know, he had a, he knew people who did all this research and they found that by the time the ball is out of the racket by two feet, your brain is calculated with 95% accuracy where it's going to land. What accounts for the 5%? The wind, you know, how heavy the conditions are. It could be dry. It could be, it could be damp, right? You know, how well the ball was struck. You know, there, there are a lot of little things that, that account for the 5%. So, but your brain with 95% accuracy can, can accurately determine where the ball's going. So you can start moving. You can make your first move. You can, you can prepare your racket two feet after the ball has got, has gone. And a lot of people are preparing late. And then the other thing that I say, and I think people think it's harsh, but I stand by it 100%, there's no such thing as early preparation. There's on time and there's late. Yeah. You know, That's because otherwise you'd have to be guessing. And so if you're guessing, you know, people people try to argue for anticipation. And I'm like, you can't really anticipate, but you can read and react. And you can read and react better if you know a, a player's tendency. You can see it coming earlier, but you can't see it until they've actually struck the ball. Right. So, so, so preparing on time is really huge because once you know how to hit the ball, pretty much everything else is a problem of time and space. And so the the more on time you are with your preparation then the more capable you are of handling whatever comes at you if you're late then you're going to have more difficulty all right so so that's that's you know so the first one was you know seeing the ball at contact the second one was you know preparation and there's a, so there are these different things find find footwork follow, wait, feel, finish, all right? So so first find the ball, right? And then your footwork is part of your preparation and then follow. So so now the, the third thing that happens is your brain uses something called apprehension to help you follow the arc of the ball because when the ball is coming to you it is pretty much a blur the entire time so so now to explain apprehension which could be confused with being apprehensive it's not that de definition because there's comprehension is your upper level thinking it's the it's the analysis it's the building checklists in your brain. It's the subjective judgments, you know, of things. Apprehension is a mid to low brain thing. And what I do is I toss things to people. Like I just tossed a battery in the air, right? So, so you see that little arc created by that? Mm -hmm. So I toss some, somebody something, a ball, and they do this. They put their hand there and they catch it. And it would take 30,000 words to describe what just happened, but they saw the arc of the ball and they fluidly just put their hand there and caught it like it was nothing. And that's what we want to key into is that very natural ability of the brain and body to be fascinated by moving objects. That's part of what makes tennis so fun. There's lots of moving objects, right? So, so this is where Jack Brody says, line up your strings with the ball. So the ball's coming in, it's this arc, and you're following the arc, and then you want to go and move and go and put your strings right there so that you can feel the ball in your strings. Mm -hmm. So that's the third F, right? So that takes you to contact. Oh, but but now there's another one. All right, so now, now so you're going to, you're going to, Apprehend the flight of the ball until the bounce. Sorry, I, had to, I have to clarify. And now this is where your issue comes up. <laughs> because there are two different kinds of people, two different predispositions for vision. All right. 
there's pure dextral and there's cross dextral. All right. And, and then also I have to say that those are terms that I've made up to make it simple. Because if I really wanted to be technical, we would also talk about being sinistral. And I don't need that word in my life. But anyway, pure dextral. Okay, well, you're going to have to clarify these things to me because I've just go with, Okay, I'm, I'm going to explain now. But I'm, I've sort of made up some definitions and I hope people play along. All right. So anyway, okay. I'm left eye dominant and right handed. So I'm cross dextral. If you're right eye dominant and right-handed, then you're pure dextral. So if your eye dominance matches your dominance, and if it crosses over, then you are cross dextral. Okay. Okay? So I'm going to guess that you are, are you right-handed? Yes. I'm going to guess that you're right eye dominant. Yes. Okay. So, and, and pure dextral players are better served by looking ahead at the ball. Oh, so, th- so this is, this is kind of funny. All right. So I like to flip through tennis magazines and look at the tips just mainly so that I can laugh because some of them are not very good at all. All right. So, so there was this one and, it, and you, and it shows, it shows Federer and his eyes are like perfectly at contact right? His eyes are perfectly at contact. And then he has a green circle because that's good, right? And then there's another player, a woman, right? And she contacts there and her eyes are forward, right? And she gets a red X. That's bad, right? But I'm looking at that player and I'm like, wait a minute, she won a slam. It can't be that bad. She's a... Right? How can we say a Grand Slam winner has a, a maladaptive visual strategy? I don't think so. She's at the top of the game, so I don't know. Anyway, so I started doing more research on that. And the research came from golf, actually. And they found that golfers who are pure dextral should look at a place halfway between their putter and the hole and then track the ball across their vision, whereas cross-dextral people should look at the putter after sighting the hole. So then I took it to the laboratory of my tennis court and also took it out onto the road. So I was in in the greater Phoenix area, and I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I tried this out on people, and lo and behold – Many people were dramatically helped by being okay with looking ahead. All right. So now, so this is where after the bounce of the ball, you will either do this. When the ball bounces, you will either focus on it into your strings, a la Federer, or you will let your eyes stay halfway between the bounce of the ball and your racket, a la Serena Williams. Yeah. She was pretty good. Serena was pretty good. So you're like Serena, Jennifer. Well, I'll take any. Okay. You're like Serena. <laughs> no, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Here's what I want people to do. Because I know that there's always like these haters, you know, there's always people, ah, that Billy is not talking about. All right. So here's the challenge. Go find a still picture where Serena has the ball and her racket. Okay. And then Try to find one where she's looking at that place because I found a bunch of them where she's looking ahead. Yeah. It, it's so right. funny because when I, when I saw these pictures of myself, I'm like, you know, first of all, I don't think I was ever told by a coach where to look. Like mm. it, it wasn't even a thought in my head of where I'm looking. I, I was training, I, I trained a million things, you know, technique, strategy, whatever. But I was never told where to look. You just look. Right. You don't think about right. it. Right? And when I when I saw these pictures, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing that. That That's terrible. And that was around the time where the is it the, the Billie Jean King eye coach thing came out. Right. Yes. And then yeah. and then people were like, you need to you need to be using this, you know, because you need to be looking at the ball of contact. And I was like, OK, yeah. 
Um, well, I love, what about that? I love Billy Jean King's I Coach, right? Yeah. And it's it's fine to train people to do like that. That's good. Yeah. But now go on go on my YouTube or search this. Put why doing not like Federer could be the best thing for you on my YouTube, brainsports.coach. And so I was in Alabama. Now, when I present, I like to work with players I've never worked with before because then you really prove your stuff. Does it work or not work? Can you teach somebody you've never met, right? Mm-hmm. So I had this kid, and he's trying really hard to do like Federer, and and his strokes, you know, look like this. And I tested his eye dominance, and it turns out he's pure dextral. And when I when we got his head turned forward, everything flowed better. He was like night and day. Mm. So so it's really a can be a dramatic change because because when people are trying so hard to do this and it's not natural for them, then that's not going to help them. They're forcing themselves into a mold. So yes, absolutely, some people should do like Federer. I'm cross dextral. I do like Federer. Yeah. But I found that there are people who aren't like me. There's a gal, Dr. Cheryl Calder. She's from South Africa. And she was the first one to develop a, a PhD in visual training, right? And so the story goes that she connected with a, a neuroscience department. And so the the professor, the the head of the department said, I'll teach you everything I know about neuroscience if you teach me everything you know about vision. So she developed the first PhD program for this in the world. And she's now tested 100,000 athletes and no two of them have the same visual skill profile. Uh-huh. Everyone sees everything uniquely. So it's up to the coaches to start to understand how what's what are the unique ways that players see the ball. And now you're but you're one of the lucky ones. You figured it out on your own. Nobody guided you. But now how much more effective as coaches would we be if we actually taught different ways and we knew how to identify that this player needs that and not this. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, is there one that, I don't know, in your opinion, or have you looked at it, that is more of an, I guess, naturally talented than the other? That, does it relate to talent at all? Or, well, or like, no, because, how fast yeah. they can react or how well they can read the ball to be pure dextral or cross-dextral? I think we do a poor job of teaching pure dextral players because of the example that you're you're talking about where you know where people compare themselves to Federer and they they have learned one thing from Billie Jean Billie Jean King's eye coach and and so then they don't have the skill of being able to teach pure dextral people. So I was I was in Atlanta and I was gonna about to go on court for a clinic. It's like five minutes before the clinic. And this woman comes up to me and she says, I have no depth perception, right? And I'm just about to go on the clinic. I mean, I'm, there's no way I can solve her problem in the five minutes before the clinic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, I'm like, yeah, hey, thanks for throwing that on me, like right yeah. before I'm gonna go on. But thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Right, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. And so sure enough, it turns out she's pure dextral and she'd never been taught that she could look ahead of the ball. And so, so I think pure dextral players depth perception is compromised when their head is too far to the side. So being able to look forward is more important, you know, because then, and so, you know, for her, it was a miracle and you know, that makes me happy. And I was seriously, I was seriously worried about whether I was going to be able to meet her needs at that time. But it worked out perfectly because she was pure dextral. So yeah, I mean, if we had, if we taught visual skills with more intentionality and and with better objectives, and then we could identify when people are not doing one of them. Because one thing I I discover is, you know, teach 
a certain aspect of that. And then we'll go on and we'll continue rallying. And then I'll notice that there was a breakdown. And I was like, hey, I think there was something you didn't do, right? What was it? And they go, I don't think I saw the ball coming out of the strings. I'm like, mm-hmm. So let's go back and practice that a few more times so that your full attention's on that. And what so, about sunglasses? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a kind of a controversial topic because, you know, there have been there have been top 10 in the world pros who've worn sunglasses. I think most pros, most pros don't wear them. And there's a notion that once you start sort of blocking some of the light coming in, that you're also compromising vision to some extent. But then it also speaks to outliers, because if somebody's eyes are just getting overwhelmed by light that they can't handle it, then then they need something to as an intervention for that. One good guideline for for sunglasses to make sure that they don't refract. So you want to make sure if you're wearing sunglasses that you that when you go like this, when you put them on and off, they're not distorting your vision one way or another. And wear them all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Right. Because otherwise, when you take them off, then your vision is going to be different. But yeah, I know some people just vehemently hate the use of sunglasses at all. I I wear prescription sunglasses when I'm coaching. So and I got the ones that now, you know, when you get out in the light, then they get darker. Mm -hmm. So and I just started using those. I really like those because then in lower light conditions, then I still have the I still have my prescription glasses, but now they're clear. Yeah, I have so, a lot of issues with that. I I have astigmatism, and I can't, I cannot wear contact lenses. I've tried it, and I just can't. it's too yeah. uncomfortable. And I wear sunglasses all the time because I get headaches from the brightness. But when I play tennis, I can wear them for teaching. But if I'm being serious, I'll take them off. Like it's like a thing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Stay with them. Yeah, it's weird, but I never understood why. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I I played with sunglasses, you know, quite a bit, and I mostly do. So, but you know, other people don't like that. So. Yeah. All right, and what what made you want to write all these books? Is there, <laughs> you know, it because you wrote so many books? Is it is it about leaving? a legacy is about sharing your knowledge. What is your motivator? Well, the first one, the first one that I wrote was to get the monkey off my back because I thought about writing a book like 25 different times and 25 different times written chapter one and then read it and went, this is crap. <laughs> right. And then, you know, then a year later, then right. Oh, again, crap. So, so I decided to write something that I knew really well because I had coached 25 seasons of high school tennis. So I'm like, okay, I, I know how to do that. So, and then I decided that also I will, if one person liked it and got something out of it, that that would be worth it. But even if they didn't, it's done and it's on the shelf and I can point to it and I can say, I wrote a book. And then, and then, you know, then I was like, oh, well, I just wrote that book. Huh. I wonder if I want to write another one. And then, you know, in short order, some ideas came for writing books. And so I just continued. That's no small feat. You know, I, like to me, like I, I view that as like, I think people that run marathons are crazy or, <laughs> or that do like Ironmans. And the, to me, it's like writing a book is like that. Like I can't even imagine you know, it's, it's really not that hard. It's, it's really not that hard. I wrote that that first book, and I set I gave myself six months to write it. Okay, so I just got up every morning and I committed to writing for fifteen minutes. Oh, nice! And then after I got comfortable with writing for fifteen minutes, then I committed to writing for thirty minutes. 
And then a funny thing would happen. I'd be in the middle of my 30 minutes and I'd be inspired and I would keep writing and keep writing and I would actually write for an hour and a half. So, but inspired or not, I've made a commitment. I'm writing 30 minutes every day and it could be awful, but I'm writing anyway. So now one of the things, if somebody out there wants to write a book, yes, you can do it. Mm -hmm. the, The one thing that's really important to keep in mind is there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good editing. So I once I knew I had every single possible idea that I could put on paper on paper, then I went back and started reading it and doing a second draft. So don't read what you have written because you'll do what I did 25 times. You go, this is crap and you'll crumple it up and you'll throw it out. Right. So, so just keep writing and 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 repeat yourself and say it in a different way and do, you know, and, and just exhaust all of your ideas. Right. Or some people are more organized than me. They write an outline, but you know, if you're that good that you can write an outline, then, then wow, it's going to be even more. (laughs) So, so then, you know, so then I went back and I wrote a second draft and, you know, probably 30% of it went on the cutting room floor. And then I got, but then I got more ideas. So now I'm writing more. I'm like, oh, I guess I didn't talk about this. I thought I did, but I didn't. So then now the second time through, you're like, okay, I forgot some stuff, put that in there. And then a third time. Yeah. And then, you know, then then what you do, then you hire a professional editor to go through it. So, you know, you put it through spell check and grammar check on your computer, but then you you still need to go and get a professional editor to make sure that that flow of ideas is really working. So, so yeah, so I wrote The Art of Coaching High School Tennis. Then I wrote Play Sports Right Your Way, which is a kid's book. Then I wrote top five strategies for winning tennis. Then I wrote visual training for tennis, the first edition. Then I wrote the athlete centered coach. Then I, then I edited an interview that I did with Torben Ulrich. And then tennis strategy 101 is the latest published book. And right now I'm working on a book that is designed to help players improve their net game. So I'm not going to give the title of that just yet, but I have a good working title and that's very near completion. So, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get net visitors to become net regulars, to become net controllers, to become net dominators. Awesome. And Bill, before, before you go, I always ask this is, what is or what has been the grand slam moment of your tennis life and the double bagel moment of your tennis life? <laughs> the double, <laughs> double bagel. Let's go double bagel first. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I'm going to do a true double bagel. I'm going to give you one bagel and then another. All right. So <laughs> I went back to college at the age of 23 and I turned in my first essay and I got a D minus. Oh, <laughs> and, then, and then I went and talked to the professor and then I got my next paper back and it was a C minus. But then by the end, I was writing A papers. So what a great patient teacher that was. OK, when I first started into tournament play, I lost first round pretty convincingly four straight times before finally winning a match. So. Four first round consecutive losses in tournaments. So that was a pretty big double bagel. So Grand Slam moment was it when I was playing was I was on the court with two guys who were both former division one players and my 53 year old doubles partner. And we were up a set and a break before they figured us out. And a lot of people said for that first set and a half, I was the best player on the court. We didn't win, but it felt good to be playing at that level. And then one one of my teams won the North Coast section, which in California, a section title is akin to winning a state title in a lot of states. So it's a, it was out of 
145 teams. Wow. That was a really big moment. It was very dramatic because we came from three matches to one down to win the final three matches and <laughs> win in the finals. It was pretty crazy. That's awesome. There's always some drama when it comes to, to team sports and, and tennis is no exception, but it's always so fun and so rewarding when you get when you get that win. <laughs> Bill, how can people find you if they want to reach out to you, talk to you, ask you questions about visual training, yeah. brain sports, whatever yeah. it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd love to come to people's, you know, come come to your convention, speak at your convention or, you know, to your high school group or club do special clinics and all that we can do that it's you know it's really awesome when you see that quantum improvement but you can you my website is brainsports.coach uh you can email me at infinitevisioncoach at gmail.com and and my cell phone is 619-736 wait don't laugh 619-736-8975 All if right. I'm answering, I must want to talk about tennis. You're crazy. You're going to give your phone out like that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I can block spam callers if I have to. <laughs> You're to get enough of that, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> <Some> likely calls. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for thank being you, with Jennifer. us. That, that hour went by too fast. And it was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. If you want to learn more about Bill and his trainings, make sure to visit his website or follow brainsports.coach on social media. As usual, you can find all the links in the show notes. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review or share our content on social media or with someone who you think will enjoy listening to these conversations. Thanks for listening and until next time.